1 Chronicles 29 is where we're going to be at starting out. But I want to talk today, we've been talking about what a mighty God we serve. And we've talked about over the last two weeks the infinite God, and we've talked about the eternal God and what that means for us as Christians. And when we talk about God, so often you'll hear people make statements, well, my God, well, my God, well, my God. Well, here's what I want you to understand. We want to look at the God of the Bible, not the God you've created in your minds. We want to worship the true, the one true, genuine God that no man could create, that no man could comprehend or come up with on their own. And that's why we talked about him being infinite, that when it comes to God being infinite, it means it's almost it's impossible for us in our finite minds to comprehend all that there is to know about God. And then we talked about his eternality, that he is eternal. He's always been and he always will be. And only, those, only one who has always been and always will be can offer us eternal life. And so today we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. We're going to talk about what it means that God is sovereign. And I think especially with what's going on today, we really need to see this topic more and more and more. So we need to understand what it means that God is sovereign. So we're going to take a look first at what it means that God is sovereign. And then I want to do this on a more practical level this morning. I want to answer questions that I believe you would have if we talk about the sovereignty of God. Questions that you would have, questions that I have had that have to be answered in order for us to really understand what it means that God is sovereign. So it's going to be a little bit more practical today than theological. So I want you to look with me in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. What we first want to see is that when we talk about God being sovereign, He has supreme power and authority. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12, it says this, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. In thine hand is power and might. In thine hand is, is to make great and to give strength unto all. God is the head of everything. Could you imagine a God that we worship that had to seek counsel from someone? The God we serve doesn't need counsel. The God we serve doesn't need direction. The God we serve doesn't answer to anyone. He is the supreme authority, the supreme ruler, the head of all. It's from him that we get power. It's from him that we get might. It's from him that we get all things that we need in life. If God were to remove his hand from us, if he were to remove his sovereign hand from each and every one of our lives, we would immediately stop breathing and die. God is supreme. He is the head. He's the ruler. Now, I don't know if you grew up in a home where you may have heard these words, my house, my rules. Anybody grow up in a home like that? Okay. And you know what I'm talking about. You had a, a sturdy-handed father that liked belts, right? Amen. And when you'd hear it whip through those rings, you knew you was in trouble, right? You knew that what he meant was, if you break my rules, there's trouble for you. You live in my house, and therefore it's my rules. Now, I would love to say that dads are a great representation of God, but it's not true because we know they still have to consult mama. <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't lie. You know you do. Now, you think about it. You still, gotta, you still have to coexist with someone. You still have to work with someone. That's why God paired us together. We work together on the discipline of our children. 
God doesn't coexist or need help or discussion. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what he can and cannot do. He doesn't need anybody to give him authority. He doesn't need anybody to give him power. He doesn't need anybody to give him direction. He doesn't need to know what your will is for your life. He's head. He's supreme. He's in charge. That's the sovereignty of God. It also means this, that he has supreme ownership. If you want to look at Psalm 24 and verse 1, we see that God has supreme ownership of everything in this world. Listen to what it says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let me just tell you something. God owns this world. This is his. He created it. He has absolute sovereign authority to decide what needs to go on in this world. And who are we to challenge it? Now, you understand when we talk about the sovereignty of God now, and I'm telling you, I know as I'm going through these explanations and these definitions, you're saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, I've got some questions. Well, I'm glad we're going to get to your questions, I believe, in just a moment. But when we talk about this, that means that God is simply in charge. And you say, well, wait a minute, what about all the problems in the world? Can I tell you something? It's not outside of God's control. You say, well, wait a minute, what about this virus that's going around right now? It's not outside of God's control. What about world governments that are doing the things that they're doing? It's not outside of God's control. And we'll talk about that in a moment. God supremely owns all things. God also has supreme freedom. In Psalm 115, if you want to look there, Psalm 115 and verse 3, it simply says this. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Now, how many of you like being free. Anybody like being free? I like being free. How many of you remember what it was like when you turned 18 and you went off to college and you thought you were free? I remember it. I thought to myself, this is fantastic. I won't have parents watching my every step. I won't have parents telling me everything I can and cannot do. And I still got that word, I'm paying for it. You will listen to me. Right? But you think about this. God has supreme freedom. In other words, God does not again have to go to anyone for permission about anything. He doesn't have to ask you. He doesn't have to get your... He doesn't, you don't even have to understand it. That's tough sometimes for us to comprehend. But he's God. And I love it when people say, well, man, when I get to the end and I'm standing before him in judgment, I can't wait to tell him what I think. Good luck. Good luck. I'm not saying anything. You want to know why? Because he's God and I'm a human and I have no right to speak to him unless he allows me to. He has that kind of authority over me. I trust him. I love him. I believe him. And I know he's in charge. So now we understand what sovereignty of God means. Let's ask these questions. We're going to look at three questions That must be answered if we believe that God is sovereign. Here's the first one, and I know this is probably the first one that comes to your mind. If God is sovereign, why does evil exist? Isn't that always the first question? I mean, people will say this all the time. They'll say, if your God is such an amazing God, and your God is the God that we should worship, why does evil exist? Exist. I want to tell you that there are a lot of people out there that come up with all kinds of different theologies and philosophies. I want to share with you a few of them. There's one called deism. Maybe you've heard of it. The idea of deism is simply that God created the world and he's abandoned it. It's called the watchmaker theory. 
The watchmaker builds the watch, he winds it up, he sets it down, and he lets it go. Some people have this mindset that God created the world, and now he's abandoned the world, and the world can do whatever it wants. When we chose to sin, God left us alone and said, if that's what you want, you can have what you want, and he just turned it over. That's called deism. Can I tell you something? That's not scriptural. Another thought that comes across is called finitism. Finitism is the idea that somebody rejects God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. In other words, they say this. If there's evil in the world, there's two problems. You either have to believe that God is not all good, or you have to believe that God is not all powerful. And so this guy come up with the idea, he said, well, he's not all powerful. In other words, the things and events that go on, God can't control, God can't overcome, and therefore God is finite like mine, and therefore these events happen because evil has the same amount of power as good. Can I tell you something? That ain't biblical either. God is all powerful. Well, then we have to come to a third one, and that's what we call dualism. And, and this is more modern day, and that is simply that good and evil have always coexisted with one another. We get that from Buddhism. If you've ever studied Buddhism, the yin and the yang, let me just tell you something. In the end, good wins. But can I tell you something? Right now, good is winning. God always wins, He never fails. Satan has no power over him. Satan has to get his permission, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. He can't do anything outside of the powerful hand of Almighty God. So that is wrong. So what do we think about this? What does this teach us? Well, one, we need to understand that God can prevent evil. God can prevent evil. And it, tells, it goes, reminds me of a story of Abraham when he went down into Egypt in Genesis 20. and verse 6, Abraham had lied about his wife. And what he did was he lied about her. And he said, that, uh, he said to the king of Gerar, he said, you know what? She's my sister. So he takes her into his harem. And so he doesn't do anything. But here's God's answer because he wants to know why is he being plagued. He says, and God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. In other words, God prevented that evil from happening. God can prevent evil. He can stop it. God has the power to stop all evil in the world. Now here's the issue that we have. You say, well, if God has all the power to stop it, why doesn't he? Why do things that we see going on, why do do the news show us all the things that we see? Why do we see all these deaths and things happening? Why are all these, this chaos and all these problems ensuing? Why are people in poverty? Why are people dying from starvation? Why all these questions begin to come up in our minds. Why do these things happen? Why are they allowed to happen? Here's what we need to understand. Sin came into the world. And because sin came into the world through man who chose to sin, who gave up his right to be perfect. Because here's the thing. Adam was perfect. He was without sin. He was without fault until he chose to eat of the fruit, he and Eve. When sin was brought into the world, so was decay and so was death. And so were all the problems that we see today. God can prevent them. But here's the thing. If God were to prevent everything that happens, and God were to basically do everything that goes on in this world, that means you're just a puppet on a string, and he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. God's not a puppet master that basically makes everything happen. It happens and makes you do everything you do and say everything you say. God's not sitting there pulling your strings to make you do evil. You choose to do it on your own. But God can prevent evil. Here's the thing. The Bible teaches us that God does not always 
prevent evil. He doesn't always prevent it. Psalm 81 makes it very clear. In Psalm chapter 81 verses 12 and 13 it says this, so I gave them up under their own hearts, lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. In fact in Romans 1 he makes a very similar statement. I gave them over to their debased minds. In other words they continued to choose to go down that evil path and God said I didn't prevent it. I just let them go down that path. God's not going to take away your decision-making. That's not the God we serve. Now, God can work through circumstances and situations, but God does allow evil because, they get this, there are evil people in this world. And evil people, unfortunately, are going to do evil things. But God does not... But here's the thing we need to understand, too. God can direct and use evil. You say, what do you mean God can direct and use evil? There's another guy that I love his story. His name's Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph in the Old Testament was a good guy, but his brothers were very jealous of him. They envied him. They envied him because he was the dad's favorite. And because of their envy of him, they actually ended up selling him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. Now, some people would look at that and go, couldn't God have stopped it? He could have, but it was God's plan for that to happen to Joseph. Isn't that amazing that you'd say it's God's plan that Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery? Not only did they sell him into slavery, but he goes into a foreign land. He goes into Egypt, and while he's in Egypt, he ends up in a man Potiphar's house. And while he's at Potiphar's house, he becomes second in command in the house. Everything is is given to him. He's, He's able to do whatever he needs to do. He controls that household. But then all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife casts longing eyes upon him. She wants him, so she jumps him. She surprises him. He takes off his coat and he runs, and she accuses him of rape. Now Joseph is in a foreign land. Not only is he in a foreign land, he's not only a slave now, now he ends up being in prison in a foreign land. And can I tell you something? It was God's plan. You say, wait a minute, that's a lot of evil happening to Joseph. It is. But God was going to use that evil. God was going to use those difficulties in Joseph's life. How do you know that? Well, here's what happens. Joseph ends up in prison. He runs into these two guys, the baker and the butler. He interprets their dreams. Eventually, they get out. God frees one. God God allows the other one to be taken because one of them tried to poison Pharaoh. So God saves one of them. He's supposed to remember Joseph. Guess what? He forgets Joseph for two more days years until Pharaoh has a dream about a great famine coming in the land and all of a sudden when Pharaoh has this dream he doesn't know who to turn to because his wise men can't help him well all of a sudden the butler remembers hey there's a guy that I remember in prison that interpreted dreams why don't you go talk to him and it's Joseph Joseph is brought before Pharaoh Joseph tells him God's plan is to give you seven years of plenty and then there's going to be seven years of famine. God has given you the seven years of plenty so that you can be prepared for the seven years of famine and you can end up saving this nation. God put him there for that reason. Now some of you would say, well man, I'll tell you what, I bet when he met up with his brothers, he gave them what for? Let me tell you what he said to his brothers in Genesis 45, 5. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. You know what he said? He said this. He said, yeah, you guys were wrong. But God had a plan. Can you imagine being able to say that? That whatever's happened in your life, all the difficulties you've been through, all the evil that's happened to you, all the people that have been ugly to you, all the things that have occurred in your life, all the difficulties you've faced, all the problems you've gone through, can you look back and say, but you know what? God had a purpose for it. God knew what he was doing. 
Even in the midst of my difficult times, God was allowing this to happen to make me who he wanted me to be. God can use it. And not only did Joseph say it once, but then after his father died, his brothers were a little bit concerned again that Joseph was going to enact retribution on them. So in Genesis 50 and verse 20, he says, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. You see, here's the thing. You don't know why God allowed you to go through the circumstances you went through, but he's got a purpose for it. You may not understand all the difficulties that you face, but God's got a reason for it. God had a purpose in your life to allow you to go through those things because God wants to use you. He wants to use you. And he wants to use your story. He wants to use those difficulties because God has a plan. He's never out of control even though evil exists. Here's the truth of the matter. God can limit evil as well. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I love the story of Job. (laughs) Job makes it very clear. In Job chapter 1 and verse 12, Satan is asked to sift Job. And it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. You get this? Satan has to ask God's permission. He can't touch you. Unless God allows it. Isn't that amazing to think about? The supposed purpose of all evil. The supposed one who has as much power as God. No, he doesn't. Not even close. He can't compare. It's not even a chance. There's not even a battle there. I promise you, the battle that goes on between Satan and God in the end, it ain't going to be much of a battle. He's going to go easily. Our God knows what he's doing because even at this moment, Satan has to ask permission to do anything to you. He can prevent, he can limit the amount of evil. In fact, in Job chapter 2, after Satan doesn't get his way, he goes back to God. And God says this to him. He says, hey, you can touch Job, you just can't kill him. Now, can you imagine being in Job's situation? Now, I will tell you this. If you're in a depressing and going through a difficult time, do not read Job. Don't read that book. If you're in the middle of a Bible reading and you get to a hard time, skip it if you have to. Come back to it later when you're in a good place. I'm serious. Philippians is the book you need to read when you're depressed. But you think about this. The whole book of Job, he goes through all these difficulties, all these sorrows. His own friends even turn against him. And when he comes in the end, and I love it, when it comes to the end of the book, yes, God gives him everything back, but I love Job's revelation. Job goes, you know what? I spoke out of turn. And I'm sorry, God. I had no right to challenge you. God, you can prevent evil. You can limit evil. Here's something we need to understand. God never, ever, ever performs evil. He never performs evil. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Man, if we were to declare God is evil, if we were to declare that God is sovereign, that basically God created evil, that no, you need to understand God allowed evil. He didn't create it. God can limit evil, but it doesn't mean he doesn't. God can do all these amazing things. He's sovereign. He's in control of all these situations. So with the situation that's going on right now in the world, and a lot of people say, well, man, with everything that's going on with this pandemic, can I tell you something? God hasn't lost control. 
Can I tell you some of the things that God has done through this pandemic? In the pandemic, God has done a lot of things. Number one, he's shown who are truly his. He really has. Now you say, well, does that mean you're talking about those that are coming to church? No, it's not about that. Because here's the thing. If you've held on to your faith through the midst of this pandemic, you're showing you're real. Because a lot of people in the midst of this, they've turned from God because they blame God for what's going on. I don't blame God for what's going on. I believe God is using this to prepare us for better and greater things. You say, well, what about all the lives that have lost? Well, if they're Christian, where have they gone? They don't have to fear this mess anymore. They're in a better place. Are you kidding me? It's not our ultimate goal as Christians to be with God forever. So if they're already there, praise God. They don't have to experience any more of the problems down here in this world. They have experienced what life was all about in the first place. So no, I'm not worried about the things that are going on. Why? Because I know my God is in control. Now here's the thing. Evil does prevail sometimes. But God has a plan and a purpose behind it. If God is sovereign, why does evil exist? It's simply because there's evil in this world. And God is going to judge the evil of this world. The Bible, to be honest with you, tells us that we all fall short. We all fall short. Second question we need to answer is, if God is sovereign, have our actions already been determined? You ever thought about that? Have our actions already been determined? Well, there's a couple of philosophies that came out. One's called fatalism. It's the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. Predetermined. In other words, everything's already been mapped out for you. Can I tell you there is a difference in foreknowledge and predetermined? Okay? I, want to, I know we're going to school here for a second. I want you to understand the difference. Predetermined means it is made to happen. It's already been determined and it's going to occur and everything is already mapped out and it's made for you to do. Foreknowledge simply means this. God knows everything you're going to say, everything you're going to choose, everything you're going to do. God knows it. He doesn't make you do it. You say, well, if God already knows everything, here's the thing. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how you're going to react. You don't know the steps that you're going to take. God just simply knows those things. He doesn't make them happen. Then there's determinism. It's the doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by a cause external to the will. Some philosophers go so far as to say individual human beings have no free will and cannot be held responsible for their actions. Man, that'd be nice to not be held responsible for the decisions I make. Wouldn't it you? I'm not responsible for all the mistakes I make. Wouldn't it be nice? Because, I mean, you think about this. This is, this is old school. It's, it's an old show, right? The devil made me do it. We can blame everything on the devil. It's all his fault. I didn't do anything on my own. He made me do it. These people go so far as to say, no, when the devil made you do it, it was God who made you do it. That's not biblical. Because God is not going to make you commit any kind of evil. He's not going to make you sin. It's always funny to me when people go, I'm trying to decipher the will of God for my life. And usually it's over a sin. I'm trying to decipher if God wants me to do this or not. If it's a sin, the answer is no. Do I need to make that a little clearer for those of you in the back? No. No, he doesn't want you to sin. He doesn't want you to do anything outside of the will. He doesn't want you to go outside of his word. He doesn't want you to do those things. You don't have to ask God's will on those questions. He's already said it for you. A couple examples of this, and I love it. David, 
There's a story about David in 2 Samuel 24. And it's an interesting story about David who is going to number the people. It says in verse 1, it says, And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now understand, God didn't want him to number the army. God wanted him to trust him. But here it says that God asked him or wanted him, didn't ask him to number it, but God wanted him to go in that direction because he had two things he needed to do. One, he needed to humble David. Two, he needed to humble the nation of Israel. In fact, in 1 Chronicles, it tells us that when God did this, Satan was the one who inspired David to number the people. Again, God was ultimately in control of this situation. Now, a lot of people say, well, did God make David do it? No, he didn't. God didn't make David do it. David chose to do it because David wanted to know how many was in his army so he'd know what battles he could go and fight, what battles he could go and win. Many a king would do this. They would actually number their army every year to figure out what they needed to do, who they could battle, how much more land they could take, how many more enemies they could defeat. David was just being like a normal king. But the problem was, up until this point, he hadn't done it. He wasn't like a normal king because he was one who was after God's own heart until all of a sudden his pride got in the way. But David chose to do it. And some people will bring up this one. They'll bring up Pharaoh. They'll say, well, what about Pharaoh? Hadn't you read the book of Exodus? Hadn't you read what God said about Pharaoh? He was going to harden Pharaoh's heart? The answer is yes, he did. God said more than five different times, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We also know that Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Let me just tell you something. God didn't force Pharaoh But God knew who Pharaoh was, and God knew what Pharaoh would do, and God had a plan. He wanted Pharaoh to do those things. You say, what do you mean he wanted it? Because God wanted to bring all ten plagues down on Egypt because he had a plan. So that when he delivered Israel out of Egypt, when they went into the land, guess what they were talking about? Man, these are the people. Did you see what God did to Egypt because of these people? Man, there was a rumor that went around so that when Israel went in, they had already defeated the people of the land. They had already won. But Pharaoh did what Pharaoh wanted to do. What about Judas? Judas is always one that people bring up. What about Judas Iscariot? Wasn't it prophesied that a friend would betray him? The answer is yes, it was. Absolutely, in the book of Psalm. That one who he gave bread to would betray him. But can I tell you something? Judas betrayed him because that was Judas' choice to betray him. Judas sold his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver. Did Judas have a choice? The answer is yes. Was there going to be a disciple that would betray Jesus? The answer is yes. God and his sovereign will already had a plan. Here's the thing. The point of the matter, the crucifixion was a set in stone. Did you know that? It was going to happen. It had been prophesied. It was going to take place. And so some people say, well, if it was going to take place, then how can God hold man accountable? Well, listen to this. In Acts 4.27, Peter's preaching says, For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. All those people turned on Jesus. Every last one of them. But you say, wait a minute. Scripture tells us that it was by the predetermined plan of God. And that's true. In Acts 2.23, Peter had already preached it. When he said this, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you've taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. This shows both the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man working hand in hand. God had a plan. Man enacted the plan. But man did it of his own free will. Isn't it amazing that the crucifixion was designed by God? Can you believe that? That God willingly, even before the creation of the world, said, my son will go and be crucified for the sins of the world. 
Man is not guiltless. And here's the truth. It always blows me away when people try to blame Israel. Don't blame Israel. If you want to blame anybody for the crucifixion, blame yourself. I put him on the cross. You put him on the cross. It was our sins that held him on the cross, not the nails. He was dying for the entirety of the world, for you and for me, by God's predetermined plan, but by man's own free will and actions to do it. God has not puppeteered us and determined the things that we do, but God is sovereignly in control of those things. Last question I think we need to answer. If God is sovereign, are we not already fulfilling His will? If God is sovereign, are we not already fulfilling His will? Well, we need to understand a couple things. One, we need to see God's perfect will. You realize God has a perfect will. In the book of Daniel, we read about this perfect will. In Daniel 4 and verse 35, it says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What hast thou done? When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Pray what? Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. He taught us to pray what? Father, what does he say? Thy will be done. That's what we should desire. But I love what he tells us in the prayer that he emphasizes to us on how to pray. He simply says this in Matthew chapter 6. It's so beautifully written that so often we talk about this as the Lord's prayer. Or some call it the exemplary prayer that we should pray. But in Matthew chapter 6, he says it this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will carried out in heaven? Perfectly. Right? There's no sin. There's no angst. There's no problems. There's no difficulties. It's perfect. And we're praying, God, your perfect will is in heaven, will be done here on earth. So there's God's perfect will. We also understand that God has a sovereign will. In Matthew 10 and verse 29, we see this when he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father? Even the birds will not pass away outside of the will of God. In the book of Proverbs chapter 16, in Proverbs 16 and verse 1, it says, The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In verse 33, the lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. You think about this. God's perfect will. And then when we talk about God's sovereign will, the idea is we should desire to want God's will lived out in our life. It's not already determined, it's not already purposed, but we should want it for ourselves. We should want to know which direction he wants us to go in, what he wants us to do. We don't always do it. And that's where we come to the third thing, and that's God's decreed will. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 3, Paul says it this way. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. There's several times in Scripture where it says this is the will of God. But I think the one that stands out the most is found in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 to help us understand where we ought to be as Christians. 
He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. You know why there are a lot of people that grow up in church that get saved multiple times? Or we talk about them, you see them getting saved again or getting saved again. It's because of verses like this. They don't get saved again. They just genuinely get saved. Why? Because if you claim to be a Christian and yet you're not living in the will of God, how can you claim to be His? He makes it very clear. It's not everyone who says, it's easy to claim Jesus is Lord of your life. That's easy to come to church. It's easy to get baptized. It's easy to go through the motions. But he says, they shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, but he. Understand the word but means, here's the comparison. Here's the comparison. But he that doth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those who will go to heaven are those who do the will of God. It's his decreed will, what he wants for your life. It's not determined. You're not made to do it. You're giving a choice and an opportunity to do it. And that's why we pray, God, we want your will here on earth as it is in heaven. We want that perfect will. We want that sovereign will. We want to do the things you've decreed to us. We want to be the people of God you've called us to be. So what does all this mean? If God is sovereign, what does all this mean? I want you to know a couple things that this means for you and me. Number one, God knows all, sees all, and he can do all. He knows all, he sees all, he can do all. There's nobody that can withhold God. There's nobody that can tell him he's doing something wrong. There's nobody that can contain God. That's why I love that in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And as they're walking off, he's not a tame lion. He's not a God you can put in a box. You can't do it. He's too big. If he can't be contained in a temple, he certainly can't be contained in a box. But number two, God is never out of control. And he's always working. He's never out of control. And he's always working. So whatever's going on in your life, whatever difficulties you're facing, God has a reason for it. I learned a long time ago to stop asking God why. I don't know if you do that. But you don't ever get an answer to the why. But you will get an answer if you ask this question. God, what are you trying to teach me from this? What is the lesson I need to learn? What is it that you're preparing me for? What is it that you want me to do? Who is it you want me to help? Because I promise you, typically what you're going through is because God wants you to help somebody else who may be going through the same thing. And they need somebody strong like you to show them how to have faith. God is never out of control. He is always sovereign. And he knows what he's doing. 